Hello people, welcome to another episode of my podcast My book is better than yours I could find a better name, but please don't judge a book by its cover This month's episode will have a bittersweet taste It is an exhilarating journey through the most creative and catastrophic fucked-ups in human history in a humoristic and funny way. I am talking about humans, a brief history of how we fucked it all up by Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips is a journalist and humor writer based in London. He studied archaeology and anthropology and the history and philosophy of science at Cambridge. And he is pleasantly surprised that his studies were actually helpful in writing this book. The guy has tones of humor. You can notice that at the very beginning, even from the dedication. Given the subject matter, Dedicating this book to my family could be badly misinterpreted. So instead, I dedicate it to anybody who has ever fucked up really badly. You are not alone. Many, many years ago, somewhere around Ethiopia, a young ape was chilling in a tree. Then she fell out of the tree and died. She was Lucy the missing link between humans and apes. And the only reason we know about her is that she fucked up. For those who have seen the movie Lucy with Scarlett Johansson, there is a scene named Lucy meets Lucy. The second Lucy is the one that I am talking about. This scene is also uploaded on YouTube and it's so bizarre that you must see it. As you may have understood, this is a book about how we fucked it all up. And I present to you the best stories. Agriculture changed the environment dramatically with unpredictable consequences. As we dump stuff we don't want literally everywhere. One such consequence could be how the Kuhaihoga River caught fire one morning in 1969. Rivers aren't meant to catch fire, as water is not generally considered highly flammable. The Kuhaihoga River was described as an open sewer through the city's center. It was so polluted that it had caught fire 13 times in the previous century. In 1936, the fire was so destructive that it fumed for five days. In 1952, a slick of oil across its surface lit up, leading to an enormous fire that destroyed a bridge and a shipyard and caused $1.5 million in damage. Domestication of animals has caused issues in the past. For instance, Thomas Austin was an Englishman who arrived in Australia's colony as a teenager. 
A couple of decades later, he was a successful landowner and ship farmer. He decided that his hunting ability would vastly improve by importing some classic English animals to shoot. Hence, he imported 24 English rabbits. After a decade, 2 million rabbits were shot each year without affecting their population. By the 1920s, Australia's rabbit population was estimated at 10 billion. Australia was covered in rabbits. Seriously. Over the following decades, Australia tried shooting, trapping and poisoning the rabbits. They even built a fence over a thousand miles long to keep the rabbits out of Western Australia. Obviously, that didn't really work as rabbits can dig tunnels and learn how to climb fences. Here is another good one from China. Mao took power in China in late 1949 in the middle of the medical crisis. Infectious diseases such as cholera, plague and malaria were something ordinary. Instead of investing in mass vaccination programs and sanitation improvement, Mao blamed animals. Mosquitoes spread malaria. Rats spread plague. You can assume what happened next. Obviously you don't. It couldn't be that easy. Instead of a two-pests campaign, Mao decided to add two other species. Flies, because they are annoying, okay, I cannot judge him about that, but also sparrows, because they eat grain. They calculated that 60,000 extra people could be fed for every million sparrows annihilated. Birds were declared as public animals of capitalism. After a billion dead sparrows, they realized that the birds don't just eat grain, but also insects, more specifically locusts, whose population started to thrive and destroy the corpse in China. It is estimated that 15 to 30 million people died due to famine. What these stories have taught us is simple. Don't mess up with nature. Commonly, people complain about their government and their leaders. Believe me, the leaders we have cannot be compared with the ones that I will talk about. Let's start with King Shi Huang, the first emperor of China who used all his incredible power and across the board communication networks to find the elixir of life. Okay, Jeff Bezos spent 3 billion on the same project, so I cannot blame Kin. 17 centuries later, around 1505, the Zengde Emperor 
had a full-sized replica of a city market built inside the palace and forced all his officials and military leaders to dress up as vendors so that he could dress like a civilian walking around the market pretending to shop things. Ludwig II of Bavaria, on the other hand, devote his life to making things incredibly awesome. If for any reason you visit Hagenschuhengau near Fussen in southwest Bavaria in Germany, then you must see Schlosst Muswenstein. It's a magnificent castle that he made. Not as magnificent as my German accent, but it's good. Farouk I of Egypt, even though he was so rich, he adored stealing things. He managed to pickpocket Winston Churchill's watch while taking part in an important meeting during World War II. He also had one of the most infamous pickpockets in Egypt released from jail so that he could teach him new stealing techniques. Sapar Murat Niyazov ruled Turkmenistan for over 20 years. He banned dogs from the capital city of Ashgabat because he didn't like their smell. He prohibited beards, long hair on men and gold teeth. He also banned opera and ballet, playing recorded music at events or listening to radio in the car. He built a giant gold statue of himself in Ashgabat that rotated to always face the sun. In 2002, he renamed the month of January as Turkmenbasi, meaning the leader of the Turkmen, while April became Gurban Sultan after his mother. Last but not least, he swapped out the Hippocratic Oath for an oath to Turkmenbasi. He reportedly used to capture smuggled shipments of drugs and keep them for himself and shoot imaginary enemies in his residence. Murad IV was an emperor of the Ottoman Empire. He banned smoking, drinking and especially coffee for everybody. Banning coffee in Turkey is like banning room in Havana. Or as Tom Phillips wrote, it's like banning cheese in France, banning guns in America, or banning national stereotyping in Britain. He hated coffee drinkers so much that he would patrol the streets at night killing people who violated the anti-coffee law. I don't know which one is madder here. The fact that an emperor dressed up as a civilian doing night patrol or that there are people that drink coffee at night. He has personally executed around 25,000 people in just five years of his authority, meaning executing 13 
people every day. We have the leaders we deserve, or at least the leaders we vote for. And here is the main problem. Democracy relies on the voters making good decisions, which I cannot say is the case nowadays. In 1981, the small California town of Suno elected Bosco Ramos as their mayor. You may wonder, what's the issue with that? Well, Bosco was a dog, a black Labrador mix. Bosco was praised as a very good boy and served as a mayor for over a decade until his death in 1994. One citizen recalled that the mayor hung in all the bars growling at you if you didn't give him snacks. He was rumored to have fathered numerous puppies with different partners around town, which sounds like pretty common political behavior. Fun fact, there is also a bronze statue of Bosco in Suno. However, the weirdest non-human victory prize goes to Pulva Pies, a brand of food powder that elected mayor of the Ecuadorian town of Picoaza in 1967. Pulva Pies wasn't officially participating in the election. Instead, it ran a marketing campaign across the country with the slogan Vote for any candidate, but if you want well-being and hygiene, vote for Pulva Pies. Well-being and hygiene sound like a tremendous political promise. Pulva Pies received thousands of write-in votes on the election day and it managed to win first place in Picoaza. Alcohol plays a vital role in the dumbest moments of people's lives, especially when they are in a war. This seems to be the case in the Battle of Karansbis in 1788, where the Austrian army managed to suffer heavy losses, although their opponents never showed up. The Austrian army was retreating at night through the town of Karansbis, keeping an eye out for the Turks. A group of cavalry officers met a Wallachian farmer and decided they deserved some time off with his brandy. Later, an infantry joined. Everything was like a typical night out until someone fired a shot into the air. At the same time, somebody else started shouting, the Turks, the Turks. In the darkness, confusion and drunkenness, two groups of troops cross each other, mistake the other for the enemy and begin firing on each other. 
When the Turks' army arrived the next day, they discovered several dead Austrians and the remains of their camp. In April 1945, the German U-boat U-1206 was nine days into its journey, patrolling the waters of the northeast coast of Scotland. It was a state-of-the-art craft, fast and elegant, with a new type of toilet that discarded human waste out into the sea rather than keeping it in a tank. However, the new toilet was extremely complicated to use. On the 14th of April, the captain had to call an engineer because he couldn't work out how to flush the thing. Unfortunately, the engineer was as bad as the captain at toilet flushing. He somehow turned a wrong valve, which caused the cabin to start flooding with an unpleasant mixture of seawater and human waste. Things got significantly worse when the sewage leaked down a deck onto the submarine's batteries, which the designers had installed directly below the toilet. The batteries started emitting large amounts of poisonous chlorine gas, making the whole crew abandon the submarine. The U-1206 had the painful legacy of being the only craft in World War II to have been sunk by a poorly designed toilet. Let's talk about science. So, the way science is supposed to work is like this. You have an idea about how the world might work. You try very hard to prove yourself wrong. If you fail, you tell others to prove you wrong. If they fail, people begin to accept that you might not be wrong. Obviously, that's not happening and political pressure as well ideological blinders exist in the scientific community. Mostly because scientists are also humans. In 1903, the scientific world was shocked by the discovery of a whole new type of radiation, the so-called N-rays. They were discovered in France by an award-winning researcher René Blondelot. Over the next few years, more than 300 papers would be published about the unusual properties of N-rays by over 120 scientists. With few exceptions, all the scientists who had been able to create this new type of radiation were French. However, not everybody was successful in producing and observing N-rays. An American physicist, Robert Wood, decided to visit Blondelot's lab in Nancy. Wood summarized his findings in a politely harsh letter to Nature in 1904. After spending three hours or more in witnessing various experiments, I'm not only unable 
to report a single observation which appeared to indicate the existence of the rays, but left with the very firm conviction that the few experimenters who have obtained positive results have been in some way deluded. Another example is Francis Galton, a pioneer of scientific statistics. Some of his creations were the form of the weather map and the use of fingerprints to identify people. Galton traveled to different cities in Britain to create a map of where the women were most gorgeous. There was a variation of the weather map called the beauty map. According to his results, the most attractive women were in London, while the least attractive women were in Aberdeen. Galton was the man who coined the term eugenics. He believed that marriage between people suitable for breeding should be encouraged. At the same time, poor or weak-minded people should be strongly discouraged from breeding. In the 1910s and 1920s, Thomas Midgley Jr. was working on the problem of car engine knocking, an issue where engines behave strangely when put under strain. Midgley and his boss, Charles Kettering, suspected that the root of the problem was in the fuel, so they tried to find an additive that would reduce the knocking effect. They tried different compounds and they went for lead, which, for your information, is a deadly poison. And it's not that they didn't have any other solution. They knew that ethanol could also do the job, which was incredibly easy and cheap to produce on a mass scale. The problem was that ethanol was way too cheap and wasn't patentable. Thomas Midsley wasn't a harmless inventor that messed up with the system. He actually did the maths, calculating that they could charge an extra three cents in the gallon if they go with lead. After his success, Misley moved on to other areas of interest. Now the problem was how to cool things down. The goal was simple. Find a cheap, non-flammable, non-toxic substance that would do the same job as the refrigerants. He basically nailed it, as his team discovered Freon. To be more precise, he didn't just find a new compound, but a whole new class of them. They are known as chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. Long story short, in the 1970s, the growing hole in the ozone layer was discovered, along with the link to CFCs. As the historian John Robert McNeil said, Midsley had more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. 
Chapter 10 is called A Brief History of Not Seeing Things Coming and is ironic. In 1871, Alfred Nobel said of his invention of dynamite, Perhaps my factories will put an end to war sooner than your congresses. In 1877, Richard Gatling, the inventor of the Gatling gun, wrote to a friend that his invention would lead to a new humanitarian era of warfare. In 1897, the New York Times hailed Hiram Maxim's invention of the fully automatic machine gun as being so scary that it would stop wars from happening. As Orville Wright recalled in a letter from 1917, when my brother and I built and flew the first man-carrying flying machine, we thought we were introducing into the world an invention which would make further wars practically impossible. I don't know about you, but I'm so confused. How better military equipment could stop wars? At least there wasn't any reference to the invention of the atomic bomb and how it could prevent wars. That would be super ironic, right? In 1945, Robert Oppenheimer, the man who directed the actions to produce the atomic bomb in Los Alamos, wrote, If this weapon does not persuade men of the need to put an end to war, nothing that comes out of a laboratory ever will. The last chapter of the book is devoted to future predictions. According to the author, making predictions is the best way to make yourself look stupid to historians. I will not spend time on that. I will only mention the Kessler syndrome, predicted by NASA scientist Donald Kessler in 1978. Space will be full of space rubbish, and every collision will create more and more collisions until our planet is surrounded by a cloud of high-velocity waste. Satellites will become useless, and launching into space will become deadly risky. We could become Earth-bound unless Elon Musk finds a way to migrate to Mars sooner, I guess. Even though the book was full of unpleasant stories, it was so enjoyable, and this is due to the talent and humor of Tom Phillips. You heard about a small fraction of those stories, but they are representative enough to get the full picture. So, next time you think you have really fucked up, this book will remind you it could be so much worse. If you 
liked this podcast, feel free to share it with your friends or post it on social media. Until next time, be healthy, be safe, be productive. Ciao!